couple of things before we dig into Psalm 139 is, uh, I don't want to embarrass you, Tiffany, but just saying that there's somebody in my family who's going through a tough time. And a lot of times in church life, we don't ever do that. Say, I know somebody, right? I know somebody who's going through a tough time, but I'm good. My wife, my husband, my son, daughter, my dog, we're, all, we're, we're good. We're always... And, it, and I think that there, there's a lot to be said for, for the body of Christ and being able to be open and honest. Now, obviously, there's, there's certain things, you know, certain times that people go through certain things that it's best not to reveal every single detail. You didn't do that, Tiffany. You know what I'm talking about? You don't have to get into that without getting into that. But I think that there's a lot to be said um, for just the body of Christ and say, look, I'm, I'm struggling. Because if we're, if we're never able to... To be honest about that, then there's there's not going to be able to be uh, cleansing. So, so thank you for for that. Uh, something else is that the second, let's see, it's the tenth through the twelfth in November. The uh, Virginia, let's see, the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, who were a part of, they're going to have their homecoming. Now that used to be called a state convention. And how many of you, when you hear the the phrase Baptist? annual state convention, you get excited, right? Like all of us, like that's awesome, I can't wait to go. Well, they call it a homecoming, and it's a great group. Um, It's going to be at First Baptist Roanoke. They're going to have some fantastic worship music, pastors, I mean, just going to bring the word. And I got a call from Don Cox yesterday, and uh, Russell Moore is the head of our uh, Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission it's the group that we support in Washington, D.C. The guy is absolutely phenomenal. He's going to be the keynote speaker. And Don Cox called me and he said, um, Jeff, I'd like you to be uh, the one who is his chauffeur. Do you hang out with him, make sure he gets to where he can be? Can you do that? And I'm like, does Billy Graham have a quiet time? Yes. Yes, I can do that. So it's going to be a great time to be able to connect with him. And we're going to try to get as many people from Rocky Mount Baptist to go, especially to the evening sessions on Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night. Especially if you work in Roanoke, I guarantee you, uh, you will be blessed. And y'all believe me about Dr. Hirschman, right? And then he, he delivered. So these are going to be some great, great speakers. They're going to bring the word. And uh, that's something that I've not been able to do that much just because of school. Uh, honestly, to be involved in stuff like that, but it just so happened that it fell on a time that I was free, and then we're going to hopefully be involved with that type of stuff as a church more often. So put that on your calendar, November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Um, it'll be all day uh, on Monday and Tuesday, but they're going to have special evening sessions, so be something something to plan for. But, uh, let's go to Psalm 139. And this is going to be our second part of this this message on the existence of God and the problem of pain and suffering. And it kind of goes along these lines. People say, well, you Christians, you theists, you believers in God, you have all this evidence that God exists, that there's design in the world. But what we see is the result of that design is that life hurts. You know what I'm talking about? Like that old study that says life hurts and God heals. I mean, everything from watching the Discovery Channel all the way to the way a lot of relationships function. There is design in the world, but the result of that is a lot of pain and suffering. So the skeptic comes back and says, you know what? How can I believe in a good God who designed a world like this? And our our response last time was basically threefold. The way that you can respond to that in a conversation 
when you don't have eight hours to go through an apologetics conference with them, three quick points. Number one, when they say, well, the design hurts, what have they just done? They have admitted, number one, that atheism is not true. That there is a designer. They obviously have issues with the way that the designer designed the creation, but they've admitted and basically the, the war has been won. There is a God. Now our issue is to say, who is that designer? And the second point is that you and I live in a fallen world. Just try to walk them through. So, you know, what we see here, what we experience is not the way that it was in the beginning. When God says, anybody remember the sticker that God put on it when he originally created everything? Is good. But even more so, it is very good. I mean, it is just, and I looked that up in the Hebrew one time, and that's like, uh, if you're studying Hebrew, that's the most intense way of trying to get a message across. That I'm telling you, this is good. This is really good. This is, this is very good. So it's God saying, here's the creation, but as we know, it fell. So what we experience today is not what God originally set up. And number three, and we basically camped out on this, I think for probably about 40 minutes or so, last, uh, last time we met. And, uh, and big thank you to Ben for teaching last week. Miss Dorothy did, Ben did show up. Okay. Okay. That, cause that was Miss Dorothy's job to make sure that Ben remembered that he's supposed to teach. And so, uh, yeah. But we, we camped out on this issue that a lot of times we as Christians, we, we, we go, um, it's kind of like when you're flying in a plane. If you're flying in a plane, or if you're driving with somebody in a really fast car, Hey, Barry. Um, and, and, and you go and somebody says, I want you to describe to me this whole section of houses that you've just flown past or driven past or flown when you've driven past it. You can probably get a basic outline that there's houses and there's paint and siding and windows, but you're not able to give a whole lot of detail. And I think a lot of times in my, in my walk with Christ and the way that I talk to people, I gloss over what a lot of us think that everybody has down. The incarnation of Jesus coming into the world as a God-man. The significance of Jesus coming as one of us, assuming humanness. That is huge. That means that every emotion that we could experience, Jesus knows. And how many of us have had the sins of the whole world placed upon us. You talk about pressure. Talk about stress. You talk about breakdown. You talk about nervous breakdown, like like self-destruct from the inside out. The garden, the garden of Gethsemane, it was there. And then was at the cross. But yet as Philippians 2 talks about, Jesus willingly, right, subjected himself to all of that. And what's, what's the result of that? You tell me. Exactly. Now, now, right there, the victory that comes from subjecting yourself to suffering, that is totally opposite to the way that we think. Right? Like, I'm going to submit myself to be humiliated and brutalized and then eventually murdered, and through that, I'm going to bring victory. It doesn't make sense, but that's the gospel. So whenever, whenever we go through suffering, we have to understand, like Hebrews says, that we serve a high priest who understands suffering experientially and theoretically far more than we ever will. So that means that Jesus is the resident expert on suffering. Every bit. 
So how do y'all think that that should affect, for example, our prayer life? Amen. I mean, just just the thought of us being created by God, right? Have y'all ever eaten the Edwards pies, and it's got the little butt fans of Edwards pies. Come on now, key lime, key lime Edwards pie, pecan Edwards pie. Brother Pat, you track it with me, all right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they cost like six bucks. But you put them, you put them in, in the oven and you heat it up and you cook those things down and then you let them come steam off a little bit and you get a tall glass of milk and man, like they say, it makes you want to smack your mama. I love it. It's so good because my mom, she can make it and she buys it. I don't slap her, you know, when I go home for Thanksgiving. But I love that stuff. If you ever notice Edwards is a Christian company, they've got a Bible verse on the bottom. You ever seen that on the bottom of their, their pan? Well, go, go go buy Kroger's tonight, and they can they can pay me later for advertising in Edwards too. But it's got a Bible verse that's on there, and for some of them, I don't know if they do it for all the pies, they have a fish symbol. And I say, you know what? Just the fact that this is so basic, we're like, okay, Jeff, we're going back to existence of God and in design. I think we've been over this. Not really, because if we understood fully the fact that He made us. Little kids VBS songs, right? God made us. I remember my mom, she was teaching uh, children's church way, way back in the day when Jordan and his friends were coming through. And Jordan would be uh, 24 um, today. Or actually, no, it'd be 25. And she was writing out, like, Jesus loves Jordan. Like, they're making these little crafts. Jesus loves Rhett. Like, all his buddies, Jesus made Jordan. Jesus made Rhett. And we're like... That's awesome. We're adults here Wednesday night. But seriously, the fact that he designed us, like you said, he understands us. I mean, even human designers understand what they design because they designed it. But here's where the gospel takes a curious turn. The fact that Jesus came as one of us, he he understands that experiential aspect of what it means to be human. And so that's something I think it's very helpful to guide people through. Because what you do is you, you, when you talk about the design, you're dealing with evidence that everybody understands, you know, from cosmology and from DNA, which we'll look at a few examples of that, like the human eye and all that. But then you can lead them right through sin, because when you go through the fallen world and when we study the design that brings pain, that's an evidence of the fallenness of the world, but then you take them right to Jesus, and that's where we want people to be. Remember what we don't want this apologetics thing to be? Is you just espousing all this knowledge. Have you ever had a conversation to where you, you've talked with someone and you almost get the gist of they're telling you, if you could just sit down, and if you could just listen to me, because obviously I'm smart and you're not, then all your problems would be taken, taken care of. That's not what we want to do, right? We want to be able to lead people to Jesus. And part of loving people is trying to meet them where they are. And many people have these questions. A lot of times in church we're like, man, I believe the Bible. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that there is a designer and so forth. But a lot of people don't. So what we prepare ourselves to do is a way, is a way of loving people. So, so that's what we did last time. 
So what we're going to do uh, this time, we're going to walk through, after we go to Psalm 139, um, that famous atheist Richard Dawkins, uh, we're going to look at his criticism of our argument for intelligent design. Before we do that, let's look at the premier passage in the Bible that reveals and it shows us that God has designed us. So what we're going to do is just um, walk through verses 1 all the way through verse 16. So that should probably just take us uh, about four weeks out, but I'm going to try to behave myself, and we're going to walk through this, get the main points, then go through the outline. So uh, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Now let's stop right there, even though I told you we'll keep plowing. Right there, we see that God understands every aspect about us. So then the question arises in our walk with God, why is it sometimes a temptation not to tell God what we're struggling with? He knows. He knows. The reason why we pray is because that's an act of humility. And also, it's extremely therapeutic as you go through the Psalms, that the psalmist is gut level, I mean, honest with God. And just letting what's in here come out so that God will be able to cleanse. So we see God saying, you know what? I know you. It's just like a parent, right? Like a parent knows, I mean, they know the little kid. God knows us far better. So verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That's a good verse. And that's not a verse that's referring to judgment. That's a verse that's referring to God's protection. That he is before me. He's behind me. He's on both sides. And praise God, New Testament, he's what? He's within me. He lives within me. And verse 6, what's that? Okay, I'm sorry. I thought somebody had a prophetic utterance there. So we need an interpreter. All right. Verse number 6. Um, Such knowledge is too wonderful me. Wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Can anybody, can anybody say that that's you sometimes? When you reflect upon who God is and His power and to say, you know what? That's that's just beyond my ability to understand. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Stop. Remember Peter, when the disciples were confused about it? Peter said, where else will we go? Who else has the words of life? You know somebody that runs away from God during their time of suffering? That's the worst thing that could ever happen. Because it is God who is the source of all comfort. That's what it says. Alright, verse 7. Or verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... So that'd be a good verse to send to Joey Gerani uh, once he finishes up his master's degree and goes into submarine for the Navy. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
Once again, that's a good word. That's a good verse to memorize. Not even darkness is dark to God. Anybody want to shoot from the hip and say why that is true? Absolutely. Because God himself is light. And number one, for us personally, that means that when we submit ourselves to Christ in that daily walking, that, that daily submission, that daily love, reflection, reflecting back that love to God, that means that He shows us areas in our own life that we used to think were okay, but now His light has shined there. And I think for us, doing missions overseas on Franklin County, the beauty of it is that we have Christ within us, which means that wherever we go, He is there. So that means that you and I can go into the darkest areas Talk with the most confused people and we know that we're bringing the light of Jesus because he is there and you can walk into the darkness and it's not dark to him. That's a good word from God's word. Uh, Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Y'all can finish this for me. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now we have science that shows us the development of a baby inside the mother's womb. And you talk about, let's just go ahead and throw it out there. Maybe it's not qualified enough, but miracle. I mean, just a little kid and seeing their little... Like little kids, the the babies, their little fingers. Like they're human, fully human, DNA. But their fingers are like tiny, miniature little fingers. It's awesome. It is absolutely awesome. And to see that, and the Bible says, this is before the scientific age, it says right here that we were intricately woven. Does somebody else have a different translation there? I'm reading out of the ESV. Skillfully wrought. KJV? That, I mean, we're talking about not just design here, but specific design. Uh, Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That means that it seems sometimes like our days are random. Like why do these things happen? The Bible says, now this opens up a theological can of worms, but let's just be textual. Alright? The Bible says that God is the one who has ordained our days. That means that outside of all the philosophical arguments on one side or the other, that every breath we take is not a surprise to God. That He has plans for it in the future, what has led up to it. It means that there is no place that we can go that God has not already prepared for us to go. Even if it's against our will. We're going to talk on Sunday about persecution and how us as Americans, we have no concept of what most Christians have historically understood what it means to be Christian, which means at a moment's notice, you can have your property and your life threatened or taken away, your freedom as well. But we know that God says right here that he's got it under control. Verse number 18, actually 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, 
They are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. It, 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 it is joy. I mean, the sand of all of the thoughts that God has for us. So the Bible clearly teaches from this text that we have been designed. Number two, we have been intricately designed. And you can, I mean, so many pro-life people use this text for the basis of their argument. Because what does the Bible say about the person that has not yet been born? God knows them. Knows them. Them. Which has to do with personhood. God knows about amoebas, but he doesn't know them. Because there's nothing that can be known in a person in an experiential way, because logs and sticks and rocks and just blobs of, of gelatin, they're not persons that can be known, but the Bible tells us that they're persons. And uh, I don't we don't just, just restrict this to Wednesday night. Um, when we come to text on Sunday morning and preach this, I want to be very clear, and I think we need to be very strong in this. Um, because most of us realize what's going on in the world and in the country, that if, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we cannot support those who support abortion on demand. You, 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 ju- you just simply can't. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. A person is a person. And so I don't think we should make any apologies for that. I think we should qualify it and say we are willing to help out pregnant uh, women who are, who are thinking about that or, or willing to provide counseling and support for women who have had an abortion or for a man who's had his wife or girlfriend go through an abortion because there's a lot of people out there that have experienced that. But it comes back to the fact that we cannot fudge on this issue no matter what the president says. All right? And so that's where being followers of Christ uh, sometimes deviates between being good citizens of, of Caesar, so to speak. But that's another message for another time. <laughs> all right. Uh, we're not going to go through all of this, but this is just on your outline in case you encounter an evolutionist or a Darwinist uh, who makes this argument against intelligent design. Basically, what Richard Dawkins says here is that we have... Uh, number two, here's the second point, is the natural temptation is to attribute the appearance of design to actual design itself. Number three, the temptation is a false one because the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. Time out. Is that any rational way to deal with scientific data? No. Because here's the question. Is this a scientific question, who designed the designer? Is that something that science deals with at all? No, that's a philosophical question. And we should call them. That's why, if you you read different things, top-rate academics say Richard Dawkins can sell books, but he's a terrible philosopher. Because what he's saying is that we're supposed to bring in philosophy to do science, and that's not the way that science is done by scientists. So just because he can't figure out where the designer came from, he says, therefore, we shouldn't attribute design to design. Now, what is our response to people who say, well, where did God come from? What do you think? Oh, he is. Always been? Yes. I'm sorry? Is. Is. Meaning, 
no beginning, meaning no end. And we got into this pretty heavy at the apologetics conference. But one thing that you can say is that it's, it's a logical absurdity to have infinite regress. There has to be a point for something. And even Aristotle, who was not a Christian, he was a pagan Greek, he spoke about something called the unmoved mover. He said, logically, there has to be something that is there or someone who is there who moves everything that is into existence. A logical starting point. Because if you don't, you don't have to think about it for very long, but if you go back and you go back and you go back and this God created this God who created this God who created this God and then big original gangster God created this God, it's a logical absurdity because if something is here in existence, it was brought into existence by something outside of it. But the fact that the Bible tells us that God is spirit that he is an unembodied mind, if you want to use that term. That God is not physical. God can exist forever and not grow old. Because God is not subject to physical decay like we are. And we can even use the illustration. I can take my hand and go right here and move this clicker to one side and the next. Did my body do that? My physical body? Yes. But it was my mind that made the choice to go from the right to the left. So minds always perceive things physically being moved into action. So Richard Dawkins is not even a good philosopher. Just use that line. Just put that, just put that in your gospel gun and be like, boom! He's not even good at what he wants to do. Um, and then, then say, come to church with me. Right? So uh, <clears throat> We're not going to watch this video um, all the way, but here, actually... This is a question that's asked. The genome, I think, puts some other qualifiers there in the outline, but just, just an organism. The question is, is there an instance that you know of, Mr. Dawkins, where a mutation has actually added information to the genome? Now think about Darwinian evolution, from the goo to the zoo to you. Don't you think there's a lot of genetic information that has been added from an amoeba to us? For most of us. If you work with middle schoolers, right? Some of you guys not able to. All right. Okay. Um, and which, by the way, Bryce turned 15 yesterday. So he's entered. Let's give it up for Bryce. Entered into the pre-driver's license stage. All right. And Bryce is a responsible young man. There's some students like... Uh, I'm not going to call any names, but when they get their license, I'm like, Mary, we need, Fred, we need to put a note in the bulletin to let everybody know, hey, so-and-so is on the road, but we won't. We right. appreciate you doing that for CJ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is the question. All right, this is Richard Dawkins. This is his response. Basically, the question is, is there any evidence of true Darwinian evolution? And... Uh, I'm not sure how the volume's going to be, but we'll give it a shot. Look at our ancestors, we ought to, to, to see them 
Quote, if you had been there then, 300 million years ago, then you would have seen. So the, the, the scientific and the theological question we have for Dawkins is where is the VHS tape? Because obviously he saw it, right? If all of us ignorant fundamentalists, if we had just been there, then we would have seen. I think this is a great response when when Darwinists, evolutionists, atheists say, well, if you had been there, you would have said, you know what? No disrespect, but you have far more faith than I do. (laughs) I am. I mean, call me, O ye of little faith. Because what he's saying is, in essence, have blind faith. And what you cannot see. Question. Were any of us there when the psalmist wrote Psalm 139? No. Now there's tons of historical evidence that it was written by, you know, David and the other psalmist. But I think that it's much more rational to have faith in what the Bible says and in design than it does in something like this. The most famous evolutionist in the world right now could not give a specific example of when information was added to an organism, a genome, that resulted in macroevolution from the goo to the zoo to you. I think that's very telling. And if you watch that clip that's been regurgitated on YouTube time and time again, the atheist will say, well, he was just pausing because he didn't want to blurt out profanity because he was having to deal with creationists. And I'm like, you'd make a great journalist. All right? So... Um, but then somebody will say, uh, this, this objection, what about bacteria and viruses, the superbugs that we keep hearing out that are going to wipe out civilization as we know it and bring us to the true uh, walking dead? Uh, bacteria and viruses that develop resistance to drugs and antibiotics. What about that? That's a good question. Well, here's a statement from uh, Jonathan Wells. He says, quote, Since biochemical mutations such as those leading to antibiotic resistance and sickle cell anemia, check this out, do not affect an organism's shape or structure, evolution needs beneficial mutations that affect morphology or the shape or the size of an organism. Just because (coughs) superbugs develop resistance to antibiotics, it's still a bug. Okay? 
It's not one of those freaky-deaky alien things that, you know, come in and they crawl out and larvae and all that. It, it, it's still a superbug, but its ability to survive and cope changes. So that's just something that doesn't, it doesn't follow when they try to use the, uh, that argument. Uh, we'll run through a couple of these here. Uh, bacterial flagellum, this is an example from Intelligent Design. We used this on one night of the apologetics conference in Romania. In order for this to work, it's basically like an outboard motor. Uh, every part has to exist all at once for it to function at all. Evolution says things slowly develop. Well, the question is, is how would this slowly develop when you need every part there for it to function at all? I mean, 100,000 rotations per minute going one way. It can stop in three quarters of a turn, full speed back the opposite direction. That is crazy, crazy mechanics. Um, another example would be a, a mouse trap or a rat trap. Everything has to be there, right, for it to function. And I don't know if I edited out the actual picture of the rat that was caught in the rat trap. So if you are squeamish, uh, you may want to cover your eyes on this one. Here we go, one, two, three. That's awesome, right? That's edifying. All right, number two, uh, the human eye. Here's something that uh, that great preacher Charles Darwin said, quote, it, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Bacterial flagellum, <laughs> a.k.a. what we just looked at, maybe the eye that has like over 92, uh, I think it's 92,000 or 92 million. I'm so sleep deprived right now, it's not even funny. One of those two uh, numbers of nerve endings in the eye, and I always love what Ray Comfort says when he uses this. He said, I wonder how they counted that. <laughs> 1,200. Hold, oh, don't move, don't blink. Anyway. But, the, I mean, the eye is incredibly complex. But in Darwin's day, they didn't have the knowledge of biology that we do today. So the question that we, we talk to people on this basis is, do we want to use outdated science, or do we, we want to use the most updated and current science? If they go Darwin and say, you're just wanting to prove your theory. Once again, back to Psalm 139, 113. You, God, have formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. The cell, the human cell, uh, in Darwin's day, they basically thought that it was a little blob of jello. They didn't understand what it was. Now we understand something called DNA. And uh, DNA has, we'll just quote from here, that there's something called RNA within DNA and I know that you guys love studying this, right? You go like the DNA study Bible. Mm-hmm. Very edifying. It's, uh, it's called RNA. And in effect, it carries a coded message. And it's got the four letters that make up DNA. So in, in essence, with inside a cell, you've kind of got these UPS little trucks. And you've got RNA carrying this message that's unpacked by tRNA that's within DNA. And that gives the cell the instructions for what to do. What height you're going to be, what color of eyes, um, metabolism, sometimes, and they say even, you know, like, like hair loss or hair color, all of those things, it's within DNA. So here's the question. 
that um, I think we could ask people without getting into all of this, because we're going to get to the action points tonight. I said we're going to get through it. Um, Lee Strobel, we'll ask questions after this. This is a great, great quote. He says, quote, there is six feet of DNA coiled inside every one of our body's 100 trillion cells. That's like national debt. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> All right, about like next week. Uh, that contain a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out precise assembly instructions for all the proteins from which our body are made. I love it. Uh, John and Paul Feinberg says, quote, humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. On those chromosomes, there are, there are some more than 100,000 genes. I don't know if it's Levi's or Dockers. But uh, Bill Gates, who knows a little bit about design, he said, quote, DNA is like soft, a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. This is what people who are not necessarily even Christians are saying, that there's some type of a code, which if you haven't noticed in popular American culture, has given rise to this belief in aliens. How many of you have seen ancient aliens on the History Channel? Okay, and there's some that don't want to admit it. All right, Come on, it's pure entertainment. You have a tough day, you sit down, just turn it on. All right. but here's the thing. Uh, large parts of culture, uh, which I think it's in, in Czechoslovakia, that there are more people that believe in the existence of aliens than God. Now, that's just a defeater in and of itself, because it's like, well, where did the aliens come from? But in popular culture right now, there is a huge and growing belief that we as humans were seeded here. That we are the creation of a superior type of organism, a.k.a. aliens, now, they never answer the question, where did the aliens come from? Because if they say, well, they came about through evolution, then you have the same dumb arguments for evolution and the same good arguments against it. But then if it wasn't through evolution, then you have to open up the door to a, to a designer. But this is a big question in popular culture. So a lot of times people want to get on the alien thing with you, and uh, I usually say it's just that's just too far out for me. Come on. Come on. Right. Here's some questions about intelligent design, DNA specifically. Are intelligent, comprehensible messages self-written? No. Even if, it's, even if it's an automated code, the automated code was automated by a designer of the code, right? Another question. Did Darwin have the current level of knowledge of DNA when he published his theory the origin of species, you know what the full title is, or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. The favored races, in Darwin's estimation, Western Europeans. It was more a treatise for white supremacy than it was uh, an explanation of, of the, the origin of all species. Number three, what is the most plausible, most common sense explanation for the orderly arrangement of information found in DNA? Somebody designed it. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And, and feel free to just say, you know what? There are a lot of people out there that are smarter than me, unless, you know, one of us may be that person. All right? But I'm, I'm just, I'm willing to say that design gives evidence of a designer. Number four, how could such a detailed process continue throughout repeated generations if randomness governs the universe? I mean, think of the odds of evolution without a guiding hand. 
right? Like if there is no God, how, how, how does this organism know how to prepare for the future? And that's almost politician-ish to not prepare for the future. I'm, I'm trying to behave. I really am. Um, and then... What's that? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, usually the response at this point is they'll say, yes, but every living organism on earth has the same code or DNA. Now, everything that lives has DNA, but without getting into a lot of unnecessary details, one response that we can use is why couldn't the fact that all these organisms they all have DNA. Why couldn't that be a common designer as opposed to a common ancestor? I mean, who's the one who says just because there's a similarity of using the same code, although there is a lot of difference between an elephant and a man and so forth, but why couldn't it just be common designer, creator? And then what you're doing is you're throwing the burden of proof back on them. Um, Fred, did y'all know that Fred is a techie? I have spoken wrongly. I'll have to go to confession somehow, because you don't want to get the techies and the trekkies mixed up. That's, uh, that's the yin and the yang right there. But uh, that's a little bizarre to see Spock that big on the screen. But um, anybody know what SETI stands for? That's probably good that nobody knows that right off the top. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. If you've seen the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, this is it. They're looking for a repeated code in prime numbers. In other words, they're looking for something from outer space that has evidence of design. But here's the question. They're using... This prism, this rubric for design from outer space, but yet many of the same scientists, they're looking for this guy, but yet they refuse to use the same criteria for examining biological structures that are here on Earth. So our question is, if we're looking for criteria of design out there, then why can't we use that same set of criteria for design that we think that we see here? So once again, they're wanting to have their cake and eat it too, which is another reason I think that we need to be on our toes apologetically because what happens in a lot of Bible-believing churches is we love our students, we invest in them, our young men and our young women, and they go off unprepared and they get dominated by a one-sided perspective inside a philosophy, science, or a religion classroom, and they lose their faith. Or they stay plugged into church, but they can't ever get inside their Bible because they've got these lies that have been plugged in and they're not sure if it can be trusted. So it's very important that we prepare our students because they will face it. There are some families that try to insulate it, but we'll never be able to do that fully. And it's 8 o'clock, so here is our, here's our action points. What does God's design teach us about the problems that we face? If he's designed the cosmos, if he's designed the intricacies of what we are down to the cellular level, then I would think that he would have design for us even in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
that he's in there with us. Number two, how can we gain comfort in God's visible design in the universe? What do you think as we close? Well, you know, like, I forget which verse it was, but... You know, when it's not that going to your grave, he is there. Mm. In the utter darkness, he's there. It doesn't, it, whether we're alive or we've passed away, he's there. We're going to meet him one way or the other. Mm. And so, um, we can go through some really hard things, crazy thoughts, like maybe it would be better if I weren't alive, but he's there on that side too. Mm. We're not going to Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. I was just thinking what God took such great care to design things a certain way. Hmm. Why wouldn't He take care to design our lives in such a way that He saw And the difficulty sometimes is we can look at these scientific issues and think, well, that's something that I know to use for somebody else. When we look at the design of the big picture and the design on the cellular level, we're somewhere in between, but sometimes emotionally we can go through thinking, Lord, I don't know why these things happen or why have you left me or why are these people difficult or why has this happened to so-and-so. But he is there, like you said, Trish, he is there. And he has promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. And the focus of Christianity, the focus of Christianity as opposed to other world religions is at the center of Christianity, it's suffering. Something that Hinduism tries to say doesn't exist, Christianity says suffering is at the center of the faith. So to know Jesus means to know suffering. We're going to get into that big time on, on Sunday morning.